The Big Footy Port Adelaide podcast is proudly sponsored by New Vision. My team, Kanda, power. I love the power. power, power. I love the power. power, power. G'day everyone, Mac19 here and this is the Big Footy Port Adelaide podcast coming to you live on Port Fan Radio. As usual, we've got uh, Porsche as co-host. How are we? Oh, really good, Macca. Look, I just wanted to say, look, I was lucky enough to be at the grand game of the week. Yep. So some controversial umpiring decisions. You know, team took the lead early, controlled the game most of the day with a bit of a switch and scoring momentum in the third quarter. At the end of the day, the better team came out on top with a winning margin just under four goals. And the most important thing I think I took out of that was it was a changing of the guard with an up-and-coming coach taking down a premiership coach. And, uh, yeah, no, it was a hell of a game on Sunday. But in the end, Carlton took home the points over Breezy's Demons, and it was just one of the most thrilling experiences of my life to go see that game. <laughs> um, on Friday night, it was pretty good. Oh, uh, good so call. I'm assuming you guys saw that one. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's a great intro. That, that is the best intro we've ever had. I'm <laughs> Excellent. And, look, oh. back on the podcast is Bomber Clifford. G'day. Welcome. <laughs> so, um, very underwhelming yeah, yeah. intro by Bomber there. Yeah, what was that all about? Well, it's, it's hard to follow <laughs> up with something like that. Uh, very true. Very true. I, I did pour myself a glass of wine while while Portia was doing her intro. Yes, we did hear that. I think good. I need to catch up. I was too busy <laughs> listening to my own voice, so I didn't actually hear that. Yeah, that's it. Well, what a weekend for Port Adelaide. It was a great really one. amazing. Fantastic. Fantastic. Love it. Mm. Well, let's get straight into our love and our hate, which is one thing we loved, one thing we hated about Port Adelaide this week. Bomber, I'll start with you, mate. What was your love? Uh, what I loved, oh, look, I actually loved watching that game, and this is before the end of, before knowing we'd won. Mm. It was, I went in, I had... I had the wife and the kids were gone for the night. I had the, the TV to myself. I had ample booze to keep me through the, the night. <laughs> I had a laptop charged up and it was just, I, I don't know, it was maybe the, the expectation had lifted off my shoulders as a supporter as much as it has the team. And it was just sitting down and watching a, watching a game of footy. And it was, I actually had fun. Like it was a really, it's the first time this year I think I've enjoyed a game of football as, as a supporter and, and sitting there and watching it. Uh, yep. So that's my that's my love. That's a good love. I like that love. <laughs> my hate. Oh my, do we want my hate now or go through love? everyone's love first? We'll do everyone's love first, I reckon. Portia, yep. what was yours? Um, I got two. One was, first of all, I just Greedy. want to talk about how much I hate Hawthorne supporters. Um, <laughs> they're, always, they're always really obnoxious. Like the most annoying, and they're not obnoxious in like a normal football way. They're obnoxious in like a, an internet nerd way in that you can sit next to Hawthorne supporters for like three quarters of the game and they'll just be making, you know, snarky remarks about everyone on the field. But then as soon as they get in front, then you'll suddenly realise they're Hawthorne supporters rather than just assholes. Um, <laughs> this game was kind of different to that in that they didn't really have a, much of a sniff for most of the game and then they got kind of cranked in the last quarter. So it was really nice to be at one of those games. Uh, and just really enjoy that. But I think the other one, look, really, uh, I know we had a lot of good performers. It was really great. But just Chad Wingard sticking it up and was just a fantastic thing for this weekend. To get you know messed around by Luke Hodge, the absolute thug, and just come back and just keep kicking goals. I mean, 
there's no better way to say that you do not matter, you know, like Hawthorne, Luke Hodge particularly. I've described it in the past as West Adelaide bullshit where you basically, you go the man but you actually lose the game because you weren't actually playing football and I think that's kind of what Hawthorne were doing. Certainly it looks what Luke Hodge was doing. He didn't do much and uh, Chad Wingard just, uh, he won the day because he won the contest and, you know, he's not suspended for two games, is he? So, no, really good. Really like Chad Wingard this week. Awesome. I love it. And go easy on Hawthorne supporters. According to their scarves, they've only been members for three years, so they're still learning the game. <laughs> that, that's the thing, Macca. That's the thing. Like, you know, there's like 20-year-old Hawthorne fans that started barracking in 2008, and they think they've been through the tough times in a year they haven't won a premiership. Like, you just want to strangle that guy, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mine's a bit boring. Mine was uh, the way that we dominated them in the midfield. You know, we just seemed to walk it out of the centre bounces time and time again. Ryder's ruck work was uh, was incredible, and it was one of the best ruck games by a Port player in the last uh, mm. few years, I reckon. Yeah, he just continually fed our midfielders. Um, you know, we killed them in terms of wanting and hunting the ball as well. We didn't give them an inch all night, didn't allow them to get any sort of outside run going. It was pretty much our most accomplished performance of the season. I totally agree. It was um, it was really great, and it was against a good side too, which is the nice part. But Ryder's dominance. I mean, I think we predicted in the preview that he was going to be in a, a winning position, and the main thing we'd take out of it was just what his relationship was like with the Port midfielders. Well, yeah. there's the good news. You know, the good news is the relationship between our ruck when he's winning and our midfielders is actually pretty bloody good. So that's oh yeah, it's fantastic to see. We want to see more of that. We want us to go back to the days of Laid Burgoyne, where we're just you go in for a right contest and we're actually trying to lock up the ball so we can get that sort of set play magnificence into into effect. And so if we can get that with Ryder, then I am absolutely thrilled, probably for the first time since we've uh, traded for Ryder. So yeah. it'd be really great, yeah. Some of those taps he did were just sublime. Uh, the, little, the, the little back taps. Yeah, oh, my God, God, that's the one. That's the one I wanted <laughs> yeah. to see. Like, I haven't been seeing that really, not effectively, but you saw the little behind-the-back tap, and, yeah, that was really... That was that was like, yes, we are definitely... At that point when it came up, I think Cameron in the quarter, um, that, like, that was the point you go, yeah, no, we are definitely winning in Rock, aren't we, <laughs> to getting off those ones. It was really good. Well, look, I was a bit boozy on Friday night as well. I had a, a lovely <laughs> bottle of Pinot from uh, from Central Otago in New Zealand. And nice. I've got to say, I was very, very close to changing my username to Ryder to Grey for a, a while. <laughs> it almost happened. And then I thought about it. I thought, no, don't make drunk decisions on Bigfooty. That's what you don't no, do. I mean, if you don't pretend you're 19, then what are you? <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, Bomber, your hate for this week. My hate. Oh, it, it has to be the absolute jizz fest by the Channel 7 commentators over Hawthorne and, in particular, Cyril, whenever whenever Cyril went near the ball. And I couldn't think of a more, uh, in recent memory, a more uninspiring mm. performance by someone who was being... Oh, it was just ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Like, they, every time he went near the ball, it was it was as if they were willing him to take on the game and he'd I mean look he took took a couple of good marks but he was he was doing it by running off his man and finding it finding a little hole in the in the defense um he wasn't really doing anything special and they hardly commented about people like Sam Gray or uh, or Wingard and I found that infuriating uh, look, I think that what you're seeing there is pretty much what you see any time you see parents barracking for their kid at a, a school <laughs> game. 
yeah. which is that, you know, as long as they're not picking their nose, they think it's amazing. Um, so uh, that's really the sort of attitude I think they have towards Cyril Rowley at this point at the Channel 7 commentary team is just, you know, as long as he seems to be doing something, then it's amazing. It's fantastic. And obviously guys like Wingard actually have to earn their stripes, which uh, it's probably unfair, but um, would we really have it any other way? You know, I'd much rather be the team that has to work for what they get. Yep. Absolutely. Portia, your hate? Uh, that's a really good question. I think the only hate I have is that I had a, a an overcooked uh, sausage roll at halftime. But apart from that, I really loved the, loved the game. It was just really great. Yeah, it's never good. Yeah, it was good. Oh, no, sorry. Archie's handball. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. Archie's handball. Yep. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, you've just stolen my hate because that's my hate as well. It was Monfrey calling for that handball by Archie in the last quarter. <laughs> Uh, then looking at him like, what the hell are you doing giving me the ball? It's like, well, you called for it, Gus. That's yeah. that's why he gave yeah, it the handball. Yeah. You know. I'll, I'll, be, I'll stick up for Gus here. I reckon it was a, it was still on. It was a good play. He just handballed it too high. Yeah, it was a big, a big well. looping high yeah. handball that sort yeah. of uh, affected the time that Gus had. Yeah, yeah but if Gus, Gus wasn't sprinting towards goal, then he would have been able to give him more of a bullet <laughs> handball. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's kind of sort of yeah, fifty fifty on that one, I reckon. But in well, the end, you know, you, you're a senior player. Don't call for that handball that was never ever on. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy that Arch got his moment to seal the game a couple of minutes later to make up for it. Yeah. Well, look, it was really nice. He got the the, the chance to fix stuff. It's sort of reminiscent of when uh, what was it? Stewie Jew had that horrendous kick in against Brisbane back in the day when he yes, and then he won the Rising Star nomination the week after against the Dogs. Yeah. Um, I think it's pretty much like that, except he got to do it within the space of about five minutes. So it was really good to see. Um, and I'm not going to blame Gus for calling for it because, you know, if you're a small forward, you just want to get every ball you possibly can. But I think that obviously uh, Archie learned a lot from that within five minutes, which is really impressive. And uh, I, don't <laughs> I don't think he'll be doing that sort of dumb shit again. So I think we'll be all right. No, no, that's right. And we won the game, so who cares? <laughs> exactly. Well, let's go straight into our review. It was Port uh, versus Hawthorne on Friday night in front of a, a pretty poor crowd of 28,000 at Empty Head. And, uh, you know, we came away with a wonderful 22-point <laughs> victory. It was double trouble, really, um, with the two greys dominating um, throughout the match. We won 16 goals, 12 to 13 goals, 8. Uh, Wingard was dominant up forward again with four goals. Uh, Gus and Schultz, kicked three and Needy slotted two. Um, Porsche, you were there. Do you want to give us a quick rundown on uh, what happened? Uh, look, it was, um, I think that uh, in the week beforehand, so last week, um, we saw Clarko come out and say, oh, we don't need to finish top two to make the grand final and be a premiership winner. And I kind of feel like the players were listening to that. Um, they Hawthorne have had the success they've had. And it's similar to the way that Port Adelaide played back in 2004 and I suppose before then, in that they've had the success they've had because they've managed to develop a very efficient game plan, which means that they can still win without exerting themselves to the extent that their opponents tend to have to because they have the key players and they have the systems and they have the setup. And that's certainly something that Port Adelaide should be aspiring to re-achieve um, is that ability to just sort of almost effortlessly, effortlessly win games. Um, and it was really clear from the outset, I feel, that Hawthorne were just trying to do just enough to win as they've probably done most of the season, but that Port Adelaide were just pushing them enough. They were just scary enough to make them accountable, and they didn't really like that. And so they were forced into a position where I feel they had to choose between really taking on the game and trying to win 
or just sort of trying to see how close they can get to winning and try and snag it if they can. I think they took a second option and it didn't pay off for them. But um, I think we played uh, extremely well. I was a little bit disappointed at the game with the, um, in, I suppose, from the second half of the second quarter onwards where we sort of stopped leading up the ground so much. So what I mean there is that when a guy's on half-back and he's looking for someone to kick to, um, ideally you want you know multiple options making a small lead, like it might be a sideways lead or a forward lead or whatever else, but at least giving options to the person with the ball. And we stopped doing that about the 20-minute mark of the second quarter. Uh, we sort of started doing a bit after that, and we kind of won anyway, but I feel that was really, really where we let ourselves down. And it's sort of where Hawthorne came back in the third quarter. But, um, look, we were just good enough, and we were willing to work harder than Hawthorne on the day, and we had just that little bit of excellence, uh, particularly in the form of Wingard, I felt, that um, really just got us over the line. Uh, and Robbie Gray, obviously, had a fantastic game as well. But, um, yep. no, I think it was a really um, interesting game. I think we were well prepared for it by the game against GWS the week before where we had quite a physical game because it meant that when, you know, uh, Hawthorne started trying on, we'd actually already had a previous experience of that quite recently, so we were prepared for it and ready to work through it. So uh, that was really great to see. Um, yeah, I hope we can hold on to that for the next two games. But, um, yeah, no, it was a very exciting game and very fun to watch. Indeed. I think uh, that comment by Clarkson's pretty interesting, that you don't need to finish top two to, to win the flag. And I guess... Uh, in theories, right? But, you know, it's only really happened once in the last 10 years, which was Sydney in 2012. Mm. Um, and in the end, I think what you don't want to do is give your opposition, you know, finals rivals um, you know, a bit of a blueprint on how to beat you. Uh, yeah. And I think that's possibly what they've done this weekend. If they haven't been going 100%, um, then they could have really shot themselves in the foot because we've pretty much followed the Richmond blueprint of how to beat them a, a couple of weeks ago, and it yeah. worked. So what you don't what you don't want to do, and what we've um, you know sort of been victim of in in previous seasons is uh, you know maybe taking things a bit too lightly um, heading into the finals, and you know sometimes you can find it a little bit difficult to uh, to go up that extra gear when you need to. And I think that also Clarkson's comment was uninformed by the actual ladder. So if you're talking about, yeah, okay, can we win in Sydney or can we win in Adelaide? Yeah, sure. But right now it's looking like if you're Hawthorne, you're going to have to win either the first week in finals in Perth or the prelim final in Perth, and you can pick yep. one of those. So yeah. it's uh, it's not an easy task. You know, Adelaide's probably got the least travel to get to Perth, but from Melbourne it's still a bloody long way. It affects your players, undoubtedly. Um, even Mick Malthouse, back when he was the West Coast coach, admitted that, although he quickly forgot as soon as he started coaching Hawthorne, uh, Collingwood, sorry. <laughs> Um, you know, it does take something out of you and it is hard to change, you know, you change, get your jet lag and whatever else that comes along the way. So I think that is an underestimation by Clarks of what is actually required. But, you know, if he's going to be a bit arrogant, I mean, if anyone in the league is going to be arrogant, it should be the Hawthorne coach because they really have had a pretty shit hot last five years or so, realistically, or seven years, I yeah. suppose, yeah. that too. Yeah. Um, and you can't blame them for being like, yeah, no, we can win anywhere, anytime. I'd love for Port Adelaide to get that attitude back, and I think that we have to a certain extent. Um, we certainly showed that last week. So this, uh, yeah, I'm not going to bag Clarkson too much for saying what he said. Yeah, look, the thing that uh, probably impressed me the most was how we controlled the game. You know, we really dictated the pace of the game from the first minute. We didn't really allow them to take control for any serious amount of time, maybe mm. sort of five minutes here or there. You know, there's only really sort of one or two other occasions this year where we've actually done that. So it was a pretty welcome change, I thought. Um, and for me, the best part was um, was how three-quarter time, we're up by a point. I figured, you know, Hawthorne might sort of run over the top of us and, you know, win by two or three goals. But 
It didn't happen. We ended up coming out and kicked three goals, two before they had a scoring shot in the last to really ice the game. And I thought that was super important. Um, and it showed sort of uh, some good sort of mental attitude um, towards the game in the last quarter. Who's mm. our defensive coach right now, do you think? Who's our defensive coach? Because our defence the last two weeks has been absolutely astonishingly fantastic and they've had to play different roles each time. Uh, it's so, Nix, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no wonder they're talking about him being a potential senior coach because it's just been... Uh, certainly the last two weeks, it's been really evident just how much our defence has gelled with, you know, Trengo and Carlisle out this week, no doubt. Um, that's yeah. uh, really amazing how well they work as a team together. Um, it's interesting, I think I read an article on Jonas earlier today um, talking about how he's found it tough when people up the field haven't necessarily been doing what they were doing, with what they were supposed to do, which I think is something that I mean, I've certainly perceived as being a problem in the past. And now that up the field, I mean, upfield is better than it was certainly mid-season. Um, and I think that obviously Jonas is performing better, O'Shea is performing. Um, the fact that we're getting better performance out of our midfield and our half forwards has really improved our ability for our defence to actually be a complete lockdown and shut down defence. And that's obviously, you know, defence wins premierships in pretty much every sport and pretty much every league. Um, so I think that gives us a really strong footing going into next year. And it's just been really satisfying to see how well we've done without our two best key defenders. Mm. I, I like the way we got under their skin. Like there was, uh, there was a couple of mm-hmm. plays where... Um, I think it was Gus Monfries with Hodge and um, even even against Sean Burgoyne. There, there was obviously niggle throughout the game and you could see, <clears throat> you mentioned earlier, Paul, Portia, about how Hawks, all through the year, they've, they've controlled the tempo of a game. And I remember yeah. watching them play Adelaide and it yeah. was they were toying with them. You, you could see that they had, they, they might have been just behind or just in front and the, the, the Adelaide players were going flat out, but the Hawks players just had control of the game. I didn't yep. see that on Friday night at all. I think that at no point did they ever feel like they were in control of the game. There was a couple of they got a couple of easy goals where they did the U-turn from from the wing round behind uh, around through their defensive uh, area and then down the other wing without us touching the ball. And that was I started to see those happen and think, oh shit, here we go, we've lost this. But I think that the, I think we had them rattled. And I think there was a, there's a, quite a bit of mind games going on out there on the field. Mm. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. But also, we had a different thing to play for than they did. Um, Hawthorne, they're going to be top four, realistically. They're just going to be top four. And it's going to be hard for them to get in the top two. They've got the percentage to hold off anyone that gets an equal number of games to them. So they weren't playing for much. But what we were playing for, we didn't have any pressure on us. We were just playing to go out there and do the best we could on a Friday night with some guys that were getting into good form. And, um, yeah, no, I think that... We certainly had a few things on our side. Um, it's obvious that any team performs better when there's a bit less pressure on them. Uh, and uh, Hawthorne, they certainly could have in the past exerted more pressure than they did on Friday night. Uh, on to some player reviews. And as I said, it was a bit of double trouble. You know, the Grey brothers or you know brothers from other mothers <laughs> uh, dominated. Um, and we might as well start with Sammy Gray because his was just a, a fantastic breakthrough yeah. performance. And Amazing said, stuff. It was wonderful, and I said in the preview that it wouldn't surprise me if he was able to get off the leash a bit against the Hawks, as it was doubtful that the guys like you know Lewis and Mitchell and Hodge would bother sort of giving him any sort of defensive attention at all, and that's kind of what happened. Yeah, I really couldn't tell who was his opponent on mm-hmm. the weekend, and he just seemed to run around like a bit of a, a lost puppy all night, which was wonderful. Yeah, I think you're dead on there, Macker, and it's certainly something we did discuss in the preview. Your memory is correct. 
um, the, at the end of the day, um, when you're making matchup decisions, you're deciding who you're going to let run loose. And they made a mistake. They let Sam Gray run loose and he punished the hell out of them. Um, it was really fantastic to see. It was the first time I've really seen Sam Gray play uh, a quality game because I don't really, I don't watch Magpies games. So this is the first time I've seen the Sam Gray that other people have talked about in the past. And it was really great to see. Um, I don't know if he can perform like that every week. Certainly if he gets a bit of attention in the next couple of weeks, which I imagine Gold Coast will probably pay a bit of attention. Um, then maybe we might see a bit of a difference. But certainly it's good to see that when he is left to be the loose, oh, loose, I don't know about loose, but the um, the extra man, um, that he can be very damaging. And so that's good because it makes it a harder decision for the opposition coach to make as to match-ups. And so that's really mm. great. It was really good to see that um, he could get in there and have a bit of a good game for himself and certainly in a timely fashion because I know that oh, I wouldn't be the only person that had him on my list of people to just say, come on and try something else. Mm. <laughs> I thought he oh, was really. No I thought he was really good and really quick, like quick with his decisions as well. Um, when he was yeah. coming out of a, out of a pack, he knew. He w- it's like his instinct kicked in. There was games where I've seen him uh, earlier this year, where he's in the forward lines. He was overthinking what he had to do, whereas uh, seeing him in the midfield, more it was more a case of he was he was running on his instinct. He'd get the ball and get it out, and get it out yeah. quick. I think that one thing that I really, now that you mention it, I think I've really noticed about the Friday night game, and certainly watching it, uh, all the people sitting up down the field, is how similar, uh, it's going to sound weird, but how similar it was to an SNFL-style game, where there's sort of a lot of free space along the wings to move and get the ball forward and back, uh, and I think that might have helped uh, Sam Gray out, and certainly in terms of being familiar with how the game is played, like Hawthorne. Uh, has been said they didn't play ultra-defensive, they played fairly attacking, and I think that's pretty much the standard in the SNFL as well. Um, so, obviously, in that style of game plan, you know, he's got a, he's used to it. He's probably pretty... They obviously had a very good performance. Um, it would be good to see how he performs against, I suppose, a more shut-down side. Um, but that's probably something for next year. We won't be likely to see it again this year unless it's Fremantle, maybe. Yeah, no, that's right. 34 touches at 70%. He had 10 score involvement, so he had a play in, what, about 40% of our scores. You know, mm. it shows his work rate. You know, he uh, he was doing the tough stuff as well. A few tackles, six inside 50s, kicked a goal. Um, you know, fair play to Sammy. I mean, through the month of August, he's gone from pretty much 100% locked into list to maybe getting another year on the rookie list to quite possibly getting upgraded to the senior list for 2016 and... As we've said, you know, he looked fantastic in his natural position. And, you know, that sort of second-string midfielder with pace and tenacity and good defensive pressure and, you know, clearance-winning ability is exactly what we need. I liked uh, Ken's comments about him in the in the uh, aftermatch presser too, where he was talking about the one-club system and mm. Sam coming through that. I thought that was a nice little touch. It would certainly be... Oh, I mean, this would be the first time we've had a, a Port Magpies player. Well, actually, that's not true. At the same time, we've had Brendan Archie and Sam Gray as Port Magpies raised players um, coming through and actually being a, a reasonable AFL force, which I think is the first time, oh, God, since our entry to the AFL, pretty much, isn't it? Um, so that's really good to see. And I guess it does exactly speak of the... The strength of one club, the fact that we do have some sort of control over what happens with our players at SNFL level, um, where previously, obviously, the Magpies was a bit of a desolate wasteland in the past uh, prior to one club <laughs> in terms of providing players for the power. It was not really all that great at all. Um, well, so it was Brett Ebert and, and Poults. Poults, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just proved the argument. 
Well, look, if, if we're saying Sammy Gray is now a force after you know a couple of good games, I mean, Paul's almost played in a premiership and played 90-odd games, so he's, he's worth know. mentioning, I think. Uh, yeah, all right. Look, I mean, Paltz is not... Well, he's, he's better than Justin Hoskin, for God's sake. <laughs> and Kane Ackland. What about, um, what was it, Brennan? Jer- uh, Brennan? Oh, what's his name? Was it Brennan? Steve Brosnan. Brosnan, that's the one. Steve Brosnan, thank you. Yeah, Steve Brosnan. They didn't really work out too great. And there was another one. Sheehan? Was it Sheehan? Anthony Sheehan? Anthony um, Sheehan, yep. Yeah, it. and there's a couple of others who just sort of really, it didn't really go anywhere. And it didn't look like it was going to be going anywhere. You know, everyone that was good at make plus was getting drafted by Victorian clubs. But, um, mm. you know, it's, it's it, I suppose what you really can say about Sam Gray and Brendan Archie is that it's really been development that's brought them through. And that's more useful to us as the power than just drafting a, than just having a good under-18s player. Because you know, a good under-18s under player, everyone's watching, but a good SNFL player that comes on under our tuition... Um, that's valuable to Port Adelaide specifically. So that's what's, yeah. I suppose, most um, pleasing about the recent developments with Brendan Archie and Sam Gray. And his uh, his brother or cousin or whatever you want to call him, Robert Gray, Robbie Gray, he absolutely killed them as well. He, had, he also had 34 touches. He had seven clearances, seven inside 50s. His uh, ability to read uh, Ryder's tap work was uh, was just beautiful to watch. And you know, had he kicked those two first quarter goals, it pretty much would have been the perfect midf- midfielder's game. Pretty much. He had a fantastic performance. Um, I think we have seen him play better, but he was still extremely good this week, there's no doubt. Um, he's, if, if, like you said, if he finished off those two, then it would have been one of the best games he's had, but he didn't, so he has played better. But, yeah, no, it's, it's really amazing how much he's come on in the last few years and just become a really top-rate contributor for Port Adelaide. Um, I think that if you looked at it, like we dreamed of it probably, Six years ago, we probably would have thought, yeah, that'd be really nice if that happened. But I don't think we really <laughs> necessarily expected it to happen. But the fact that it has, he's got through his injury worries and he's playing, you know, full seasons pretty much. And at this sort of level, it's just been really fantastic to see. Um, and, and consistent too, consistently at that high level. Exactly. It's the consistency that's really important uh, with the high level performance Um yeah, and yeah, I noticed that there's been some arguments on the board about Cameron O'Shea not providing that consistency, um, and that's certainly <laughs> a fair argument. <laughs> yeah. I did like there was one, there was a couple of times when Robbie would get the ball on Friday night, and it's as if he, he's one of those players where it's like everybody else stops. He gets the ball, and everybody goes into slow motion, and he's, yeah. he seems to be able to read the gaps. And there was a yeah. point where he ran between three players. One of them was a Port player and there was two Hawks players. And he pretty much just changed direction and ran through this gap. I, I don't know how he got through it. But we ended up getting a goal out of it. But it was just, I, I think someone put a, a gif up on the, on the forum with it in, and it just is sublime to watch. He, he reads the ball, he, he gathers, sees the gap, runs between two people, and I think he handballs off to, off to Archie. But, uh, yeah, sublime player. I think with Robbie Gray, you're absolutely right. It seems like everything slows down and he gets the possession. I think with Chad Wingard, usually what happens for me is that I go, what happened there? And I have to think about it. <laughs> I have to wait for my brain to catch up with what's actually happened. It's just, it's a very different phenomenon. But, uh, yeah, certainly with Robbie Gray, he's good at seeing the thing that no one else is doing and having enough time to execute correctly. It's really good. He's the modern-day Robert Harvey in terms of his just yes. instinctive sidestep. His zip almost... I don't even know how to describe it. Just his sudden 
immediate change of direction where if I tried to do that, I would fall over or break a knee or do something. I don't know how he can do it, but it's just amazing how he does it. And it's not like he does it once every four weeks or once every you know season. He does it you know five, six, seven times every week. It's incredible. I think the difference between Robbie Gray and Robert Harvey is the fact that Robert Harvey could be swung around 360 degrees twice and still not get a free kick against him for holding the ball, whereas Robbie Gray displays <laughs> it occasionally. Yeah. That's it. Well, moving on, and look, I think we had our fingers crossed that uh, Brendan Archie could back up his uh, breakout effort against GWS, and you've got to say against a Hawthorne outfit, you know, I didn't think he could do it. Um, I thought he might drop back a little bit, but gee, you know, what a game he played as well, and you know, 25 touches, six tackles, a goal, a goal assist, four inside 50s. Yeah, he had just a wonderful game. Yeah, no, nah, he's good. Lock him in. Um... Upgrade him to number 11, which I proposed on the board, which is the next. Yeah, we'll see. I think that, um, yeah, it's great that he backed it up. Um, but that's the way Port Adelaide fans are. We're going to demand he does it for the next two weeks as well and the next season and the season after that. So um, he's done good, but he's got to keep doing it. So it's, uh, But it was certainly good to see. He's great to watch too. He's one yeah. of those players you just... Um, it's, and it's not like... It, it's not like it's effortless, but you know when he gets the ball and he he seems to be able to read the play much better than most. Yeah. And I, the thing I love yeah. about his handballs is that it doesn't even look like he's putting much weight behind his his swing, and but he they take off from his hand. It's like these they they accelerate midair. Um, it's uh, it's it's uncanny. It's the important thing about I think any player. Uh, and it's certainly going to be more the case with a player that's been developed to a, a, for a long time at a lower level, which is that they maximise their physical ability before they start learning what their limitations are at AFL level. So you'll have young guys come in and they'll play very well immediately. But they'll always have to fight for the rest of their career the limitations that they learn at AFL level that they learned as a rookie. Whereas Brendan Archie, he's had time to develop, he's had time to just become mm. extremely good at a lower level, and now he's at AFL level. He's learning what the limits of his ability are, but he's actually been extremely well developed before this point. So he's not having to overcome his mental hiccups about, oh, I can only hand pass this far, I can only kick this far, I can only get be this fast. He's had that huge amount of physical development, and so coming into AFL for him as late as he has has become, okay, this is now the benchmark I'm sitting now, not when I was mm. 18 and couldn't do as much stuff. As now. So it makes it a bit easier, and I think we're seeing the benefit in terms of him becoming the player that he is, which is that he he knows what he can do. And that's a hugely powerful thing, like in any field, not just football, but in any field like business, you know, government, whatever else you want to mention, is knowing what you are capable of um, to an extreme degree. And I think that's really the advantage that Brendan Archie is carrying with him right now. And it's certainly one of the only one of the things he can really get through um, development at a lower level. So it's it's really great that we're seeing the benefits of that and certainly that Brendan's seeing the benefits of that. Nine score involvements. Um, you know, it was just a, a great dual sort of inside-outside game. And I guess that's been one of his sort of criticisms over the last couple of years is that he's, he's very good inside, but he, he just can't find enough of the outside ball. Um, and he's now able to do that at both SANFL level and it seems to be at AFL level as well. So really looking forward to seeing what he can do next year and you know, yeah. once uh, Ollie Wines comes back into the side um, and see what sort of role he's got. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Looking at who's got to come back into the side, like we've got what Trengove, Carlisle, Ollie Wines, Jared Pollock. Oh my God! If we had a key forward, we'd be so excited right now. 
That's it. Got an interesting tweet from uh, Catherine McDonald who said, uh, just going back a little bit, um, could be interesting if the AFL gives us a New South Wales um, slash Queensland style recruiting zone. Could keep some young talent that way. Is that something that you guys might see um, happening in the future? I know there's been a little bit of talk um, about the AFL giving sort of every club a, a bit of an academy that they can sort of recruit from. I don't really have a problem with the New, Ze- New South Wales Queensland zones because the the tails of every draft are littered with players that have chosen between AFL and another sport. Like there's always every year there's multiple players that have chosen between like basketball or mm. cricket or rugby or whatever else and AFL. And so I think that's really the important battle to win in, the, in um, Aussie rules in Sydney and or I suppose New South Wales and Queensland is just the choice of AFL over other codes. So. Look, I think it's really good for Sydney. Um, I think that we found that, certainly with Port Adelaide, that like the average AFL side has like 50% Victorians, 20% South Australians, 20% Western Australians, and 10% other. Um, if you don't increase the other, then you're giving a huge advantage to Victoria, WA, and SA. And so I've got no issue with um, Sydney and Queensland having access to the appropriate recruits as long as they pay a fair price for them. And I think that the changes that come through as far as draft pick bidding... I think that's really appropriate and I think that that certainly should achieve the desired effect in terms of making sure that they have enough local guys that aren't just going to be like, eh, well, I want to go back to Melbourne. Um, you know, um, that's really what it's all about and developing the code locally as well. Like, um, was it McVeigh up in Sydney? Like, he's from Pennant Hills up in Sydney Northwest. Um, and that's really fantastic for them that he could have played his whole career there. Um I don't think you've got it through the development list, but there's a few others that certainly have, and um, yeah, I've got no issue with them keeping that. But it would be nice to add academies um, to the other teams. Um, I, the problem is that like, it makes sense for Port Adelaide, for example. So you say, okay, Air Peninsula, we'll set up an academy there. Uh, and that, yeah, that's reasonable because there's actually going to be a fair amount of logistics involved, a fair amount of money involved in developing that, that Air Peninsula zone. When it comes to Victoria, like they're not going to be saying, oh, okay, we'll pick an equally remote area in Victoria to promote because there isn't one in Victoria. You know, Victoria's got a huge number, compared to other states, a huge number of significant population centres that are still near a capital city. And so that means that if you try to apply that to Victoria, you know, you're going to say, oh, well, okay, we're going to develop Albury Rodonga, which doesn't need development. You know, it's already got the Murray Bush Rangers. They're a fantastic team. Um, and they produce talent every year, some of which is on our list. I can't see that there should be any advantage to Victorian teams suddenly developing that talent. So unless there is a requirement that Victorian teams also develop, you know, distant talent. So, for example, if they had to develop South Tasmania or the South Island of New Zealand or, you know, somewhere in the middle of North and Western Australia and Northern Territory, then I don't think it's going to be a reasonably comparable thing to what you know, um, Sydney and GWS are doing in terms of developing out in Wagga, or not Wagga, it's further out than that, West Wyalong or wherever else. Um, and I think that's going to be the issue is the same as it was for the VFL and the SANFL and the Waffle and when they had development zones, or sorry, recruiting zones, is making sure that they are fair and that um, they're not advantageous to some clubs over others. So I think that's going to be the huge battleground coming up. I think that they can prove that they're going to work as hard as the West, the New South Wales and Queensland clubs, but I don't think the Victorian clubs can prove that unless they go outside the state. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much more to say. I'll tell you what, it'll no, be nice. That's... It would be nice if the AFL gave us a recruiting zone 
that sat over the top of the zones that the SANFL took away from us. <laughs> Look, that would be the best thing ever. And I think, <laughs> I think, but most importantly, I think that not only is there that cultural connection to the area, but there's also the fact that it is like it's still a really big area. Like it's a huge geography with not a lot of high population centres. I don't think it's an unreasonable request to make. And I think it's better for the state and it's better for football. And it's better for football in the state for us to have access to that area. I think it's also been one of the uh, the, the cornerstones of, of the Port Adelaide Football Club's culture is, oh, yeah. is really focusing hard on on their development zones and their recruiting zones. Yep. They've, you know, traditionally done it very well, uh, much better than, than other, their contemporaries. Uh, um, and I think that's, I think it'd be a great idea if we got, if we got something like that. I agree with you though, Porsche. It's like, it's hard to work out. Well, how is that equalized around, around the league? Because, mm. I mean, it's easy to do in Western Australia too as well. I mean, you just say Geraldton and Broome, you know, pretty much in mm. say areas around that. Yeah, sure, West Coast, Brio, go for it. Um, and obviously in Queensland, I mean, Queensland, you've got so many opportunities for sort of remote areas where AFL is nothing to sort of say, here, develop these areas. But um, as soon as it comes to the Melbourne clubs, it's just too easy in Victoria, really. That's it. Well, moving on and uh, let's get back to the game and we'll talk about a player who was involved in probably the, the two biggest stories of the night and obviously that's uh, Chatty Wingard and we'll split yeah. it up into two parts and talk about his on-field exploits uh, first. You know, it was probably billed as uh, the battle of the small forwards. You know, it was the Chad versus Cyril show. Many of the media sort of um, mentioning that this might determine who would get uh, an All-Australian spot. Look, it was uh, it was pretty much Chad hands down. I mean, there was a player that uh, you know relied on cheap kicks over the top, you know, skulking at the back to get his touches, and you know then there was a player who, when the heat was on, he really turned the game in our favour with a brilliant mm. half of football, and you know that player was Chaddy Wingard, and there's no doubt he's the best small forward in the game at the moment, to be honest, and he should really be talked of as probably a top five player across the whole competition as well. I think it's best summed up by a phrase in classic big footy ease. Which is what's a serial I am twelve? Um, <laughs> realistically, it was just no competition between the two on the day. <coughs> yeah, it's just uh, Wingard came out and showed that he's not just a, a fantastic half four, but he's a potential Brownlow winner, all Australian. You know, he's a Hall of Fame potential candidate at this point. And Serial is just a really good small forward. Um, yep. That's just how big the difference is between the two at this point, and I think that we saw that on the weekend. It's pretty much the difference the... between Johnny, John O'Brien and Warren Treadray and Nick Rewalt yeah. and all them, to be honest. Well, except it's more <laughs> obvious because um, it was very easy for people to go, oh, Warren Treadway made a telephone sign with his hand. He's evil. Let's just discount him forever. Oh, but Chad's <laughs> arrogant. Haven't you read? Chad. <laughs> I know, but Chad's arrogant. Oh, no. That's just so awful. I mean, how can we live with ourselves as sports supporters? A professional being so footballer arrogant. being arrogant. My God. Oh, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Every game I go to from now on, I'm just going to see Chad Wingard and I'm going to say, oh, I wish he wasn't so arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I loved seeing him read the taps of Ryder's taps mm. um, yeah. at the bounce-ups. He was just as good as in, as Robbie Gray, I think. He, he would weave his way through the congestion, uh, collect the ball and spin around and kick it forward. It's, it's, he's amazing to watch, amazing, an amazing player. I think the I loved his attitude towards Hodgie after the um, after the bump. Yeah. Um, 
the uh, the unintentional bump, mind you, the reckless or whatever they call it, uh, careless bump, uh, going up and getting into his face and just letting him know that didn't affect me. I thought that was that was brilliant to see. Yeah, I, I was kind of that, that portrayed the real old school Port Adelaide spirit. I thought yeah. that you know, yeah. if you want to get me, you better knock me out because otherwise <laughs> I'm going to kick your ass. Sort of yeah, that's very true. <clears throat> well, it was um, I think that was I've said it before. I think, but Darren Smith had the reputation for if you hit him, he's going to kill you. Um, <laughs> you know, that's pretty much the way you played. Like some games, you say, "Oh, Darren Smith is okay," but as soon as someone smacked him across the face or in the back of the head, he was on fire, and he would just yeah. make them pay the whole game long. I think that's what we saw with Chad Wingard. The only thing I suppose that surprised me is that the MIP not only gave Hodge only two each, which is ridiculous, but that they didn't also say, hey, Chad, why are you putting yourself in your condition, your position? You should get a weak penalty as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Well, let's talk about that moment, the Luke Hodge moment. You know, he lined him up, the ball was dead, a free kick was paid. You saw on his face, he, li- he knew he could get him, he oh, lined yeah. him up. Oh, and yeah. he just went for it. And I honestly don't, believe he meant to get him solely in the head so that it squished against the point post and nearly made him a paraplegic but I, I do absolutely believe it was intentional that he was hoping to get body on body and you know squash him against the post and make him you know wind him or break a rib or something like that and he misjudged got him in the head and somehow only got two weeks I know. I mean, on the Byron Pickett James Bigley scale, that is just controversy, quite honestly. Mm. Um, he should be at least missing the first final. The fact that he's missing two dead rubbers is just absolutely an insult to the game and an insult to everyone that's ever been suspended, quite frankly. Um, but here's the thing in 10 years' time, they'll be having Luke Hodge on the Channel 7 commentary team and everyone will forget everything yep. about what they did with Alastair Lynch when he had that big old slugfest against Daryl Wakeland in the 2004 grand final. <laughs> or when he took drugs for however many years. No one thinks about it. You know, they don't care. They're like, oh, yeah, Alistair Lynch, he's a good bloke, isn't he? Played for Fitzroy. Oh, what a great bloke he is. And that's what they'll be doing about Luke Hodge in 10 years. So, you know, as much as it shits us off right now, and we'll remember it for a long time, no one else will. So we're just going to say, oh, well, two weeks. And uh, let's just try and beat him on the field because it's not going to work off field, is it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd it. have to say that's one of the worst things I've seen on a footy field in mm. recent memory. Like, it was... The, the way he lined him up and you, you could tell by his body motion that he intended to hit him and to hurt him. He may not have intended to, but you know, bend his neck around on the post, but that is actually what happened. That's and what happened. I, yeah. I am actually blown away that the, the match review panel didn't take that into consideration. Like it's that the potential for death or paralysis yeah. from something like that is, is there. It's like, it's not even debatable, you know, you cannot bend your neck at right angles at such speed, at, with such force, without the potential for um, massive injury. Um, yeah, but he's a I, good bloke. He's a good bloke. Yeah, he and is he a good bloke. A, he probably a loves a beer. And, <laughs> yeah, he probably gives and kittens probably to little kids or something. You know, and, you know, there's all of those things. And Brad yeah, Sewell's on the match review panel, so, you know, I he's just their read best that. mates. Are you yeah. What the hell? Oh. That, that's insane. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But that's the thing, like in any other industry, and admittedly, AFL has more lax rules than any other industry for good reasons. But, I mean, I think there's a certain point at which you go past, like, what is reasonable physical contact and into what is criminal, and that's pretty bloody close to it. I mean, at the very least, that's an IHS incident, you know. 
there should be shitloads of reports coming up like how do you think that you can do this what makes you think mm. that you can act like this um that's just really total it, it's the most disgusting act i think we would have seen on the footy field this year and um, certainly for a few years and certainly against against the port adelaide player well luke hodges probably had the two worst acts on field this year i mean his deliberate elbow to uh, the face of andrew swallow and uh, and now this and I've yeah. got no doubt if the shoe was on the other foot and it was Wingar who did that to Hodge, he'd be getting more than two weeks. Well, yeah, oh. yeah. The records. He, he'd end up with three or four. But there's multiple, like, there's multiple things affecting that. Like there's the Luke Hodge factor, there's the Victorian factor, there's the he's a good bloke factor versus Chad Gant, Chad Wingard's fact that he's from outside Victoria, he's Aboriginal, and that he is also a good bloke, but people can write him off as arrogant because he does the same things any other good player does. Um, he'd definitely get absolutely smashed, absolutely, by the tribunal. Um, it's really unfair, but it's what would definitely happen. So I don't think there's any argument about that at all. Well, the example someone posted up of the um, Hamish Hartlett's little tummy punch to Hill and uh, uh, Kane Corns' pushed on Mitchell, uh, and they, they got games. They got uh, one and two games, and you think, mm. how is that even comparable I, I don't understand how it's comparable. It's it's their leagues apart. Um, yeah, yeah. Some Jonas got three weeks for his bump on Robertson a few years ago. He got three weeks. He got more mm. than that. I mean, that's and that, if I remember rightly, that one with Jonas, that was because they part of the deliberation was because it happened after the whistle was blown. Yeah, which which is exactly yeah. what happened in the Hodge Wingard exactly. incident. Exactly. Exactly. You're dead right. Not that I want to really go back in time, but I've no doubt that Jonas got suspended for three weeks for that because of that interview that happened at half-time where Robertson had no idea where he was. <laughs> if that didn't happen, he wouldn't have got three weeks because that yeah. was such a bad look for the AFL. He's a yeah. guy clearly concussed. He's got no idea who he's talking to, where he is, and he's been allowed to go back on the field. Jonas suffered because of that. Yeah. But how, but how, is, the, how is the slow-motion replays... Of Hodge with oh, the devil look, <laughs> yeah. the devil and eyes. you can you can tell as soon as he hits him, he has this look of oh shit, you know what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> he, he knew he was in trouble the moment that it happened. The worst thing for me was because because uh, Wingard had sort of he was almost moving away from the the point post, so his motion was going the opposite direction. Hodge caught his head, so his body was moving one way and his head was moving the other. That that is just. I mean, <laughs> when you saw his head, mm. the top of his head on the on the front of the point post, and you realised that his his neck was at right angles. Yeah, that's uh, that was scary stuff. Yeah, it's so dangerous. Yeah, it's... Mm. I, I think at a certain point you need to look at the tribunal having a a ruling like you know you don't play again till he does, um, because the only way that Hodge could have got more weeks would have required that Chad Wingard have probably at least three times as many weeks off with injury, recovering from the neck, head injury that he would have had to suffer. Mm. Um, it's just hugely irresponsible there. I felt to only punish it to the degree they have. Um, and even if you allow for the fact that they always have more lax punishment during finals, the fact that it wasn't even a final miss is just disgusting. And they're not doing their... They're not following the duty of care towards their players. Um, it's quite clear on that. You know, they're happy to affect a sling tackle that does no harm and give them someone a week. But when someone does something, they can literally put someone in a wheelchair um, two weeks piss off it's ridiculous 
Absolutely, and look, let's uh, let's move on and talk about uh, the defence, and in particular the small defenders, because I thought they had just about the games of their lives on the weekend. And you know, Luke Bruce has been held goalless just four times in his last fifty-eight matches. Three of those are against Port Adelaide, and uh, Cam O'Shea did a brilliant job on him, and you know, yeah. was, one, was one of our top players, and you know, it was one of his uh, one of the best performances in his career. I thought. Yep. Yep. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably he's probably had better games, but the thing I like about Cam O'Shea is that he's almost the exact he's the reverse flat track bully where he seems yeah. to play incredibly well when there's uh, everything on the line or against big opponents. You know, he's been one of our best players in the finals in the last couple of years. He's had massive games in showdowns, um, important come from behind wins and yeah, he just seems to, to relish the chance to play against good opposition. I think it's also the fact that good opposition brings out the best in our team generally. Um, mm. So you take, some of, you take every single one of our defenders and the times they've looked the most shit is when the entire team is performing badly and they've just been on the bad end of it. And I think that O'Shea uh, has, been on the bad, has certainly suffered from that. And I think that going back a little bit, Michael Pettigrew suffered from that as well, which is that if people up the field aren't following team rules, it's very hard for any defender that has anything other than a strictly one-on-one job, which is going to be pretty much the centre-half back and the full-back, it's really hard for them to look like they know what they're doing because they're playing a certain way and if the people up the ground are not controlling their men or they're not providing options for them to kick to whatever else, then they're going to look like Muppets regardless because the ball is always going to come to defenders. Um, whereas with half-fours, when they have a, hard, a bad game, all that happens is you just don't see them. Whereas defenders are forced into positions where they have terrible games. Uh, and I think that's not just an O'Shea thing. That's a Pittard thing. That's a Broadbent thing. That's a Homsch thing. That's an everyone thing. Any defender in the Port Adelaide side, if our entire team is not on their game, they're going to look a bit shit. Um, yeah. Unless they're doing a strictly one-on-one job, which I suppose is why we have such high reputation for Trengove and Carlisle, because they do get the luxury of doing that reasonably often. Their other players are also required to create a bit more as well. Um, so I think that that's really... I think that explains O'Shea's, uh, sorry, O'Shea's form. I think it explains Jonas's form. It's certainly what he said in his interview during mm. the week. And um, I think that's basically what we'll see going forward as well, which is that, um, yeah, okay, if Port are playing well, our defence will look like they're really solid and we won't, at a certain point, if we play well consistently enough for long enough, we won't even think about the defence anymore. And that's what should be happening with a really good premiership side where you just go, oh, yeah, 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 now the defence were really good. Um because they're doing enough, they're getting enough support up the field that they can do what they do, and then therefore they're able to provide the the, the feeding of the ball to the midfield and the half forwards and the repelling action that is required for the slingshot game plan that we imply under Ken Hinckley. So um, I think what we're really seeing is the defence is looking better because, and or defenders are looking better because our team is looking better, and O'Shea is just a, a really obvious symptom of that, like a canary down a mine, pretty much. That's it. You mentioned Pittard, and you know I thought he was one of our best on ground. And you know mm. P- Popolo did nothing, and he controlled the back line really well. And you know that was uh, one of his best performances of the year. And you know back to his best from uh, from the sort of first four or five weeks when he was absolutely killing it out there. Mm. Yeah, I, I love think... Pittard's game. I thought he I thought he was great. Just really took. He's still not shy of taking things on, even mm. like it would be very easy for a player like him to retreat into his shell and just start to be uh, ultra-defensive and not creative, but to continue to, to try things and uh, take the game on, 
I think speaks a lot about his character and also about uh, uh, Ken's uh, the way Ken works with him and the way Ken coaches him. I think that also um, there's one thing. It wasn't exactly the same motion. But there's one thing I always remember about Josh Carr playing, which is that if he had the ball on, say, in halfback or on the wing or something like that, and no one was coming towards him, he'd just stop moving um, and he'd draw a person towards him. And Pitard doesn't do that. But, like, we saw, we definitely saw at one point uh, where Pitard was, I suppose, around centre wing area and he ran a full circle, like a 20-metre diameter circle. <laughs> I remember no, that. Because no one was really coming near him. Uh, and so, well, if you're not going to come near me, I'm just going to keep running around with this ball. Fuck <laughs> um, and I think that sort of portrayed the same attitude we used to see with Josh Carr, which is like, well, if you're not going to come and run at me, I'm just going to hang with this ball for as long as I want. And that's great because what that does is that draws a man. And when you draw a man, it means that there's more opportunities upfield to get the ball to the guy you want to. Um, and so that was really, I think, a thing that was really noticeable about Pitad's game. Um, some fans, I think, when they see someone run in a circle, they go, oh, what are you doing? Just kick the bloody thing. Well, they're idiots because that's exactly the thing you should do when you've got a flooded defence you're going up against and you want to say, hey, come at me, otherwise I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want in midfield. Particularly when you're in the lead and you're holding a lead, it's like, hey, we've got the lead, you're going to have to work for it. So that's the smart thing to do. Pinard did the smart thing. Like I said, some idiots probably thought it was a dumb thing, but it was just really exactly what should have been done in the circumstances, and it's really great to see that back in the side as well. Yep. Look, Cracker as well. I mean, he did a really good job on Cyril, and you know, Cyril might have kicked two goals and had a couple of goal assists, but I didn't really think he controlled the game much at all, and... You know, I thought Crack had some really important one-on-one wins, which was uh, which was pretty important at the time. And even uh, Brody, I thought Brody had a pretty good game as well. So it was really a, a wonderful performance from all the defenders. You know, especially as you mentioned, you know, with uh, with Trengove and Carlisle out of the side. And do you think um, David Hale being a late exclusion um, really played into our hands? Because uh, as we mentioned in the preview, maybe it was looking like you know they were going in a, a bit tall and we might be stretched a bit, but it really played into our hands, I thought. I think it played into our hands in two areas. Obviously, it played into our hands in terms of not having to man him up as a, a resting forward, but it also obviously played into our hands in that Ryder didn't need lobby around. Um, mm. yeah. I think that was really the big difference in that uh, Ryder against McAvoy. I mean, McAvoy, I didn't, haven't rated at any point in his career, quite honestly, which is probably a bit unfair, but... Um, no, he's know, ordinary. If it had been McAvoy <laughs> Hale, I mean, Hale... As much as he looks like a giant accountant, he's still a good ruckman. Um, and I think that he's uh, you know, probably a pretty good, a good enough team to beat Ryder over the whole game. So um, it certainly did play to our advantage, I think, absolutely. I like how he went bold, and then he obviously went on advanced hair and got some hair back, and then he thought, nah, stuff it, this is too much work, I'm going to be bold again. <laughs> That, that that's takes right. a lot of class. Well, that's the thing. I mean, they really need Brent Gear around as a hair coach. Um, <laughs> you know, as a player. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, the only other player I want to mention is uh, Hammer, who had a, another great game. He's had a, a pretty consistent season. Um, you know, just a, another really mature performance. Twenty-six touches and a goal, and yeah, he did a lot of great work in the midfield as well. Yeah, look, he was really good. Um, I guess if I was picking out the players that were the best on Friday, he probably wouldn't be in the top seven or so. But there's no doubt that he had a really solid contribution for us. Um, and I think the the fact that he sort of is playing, dare I say it, he's playing a little bit more of that Stephen Salopek style role behind the centre square, 
Um, he's actually quite good at it, and it's really for someone with his kicking skill uh, in terms of length and also reasonable accuracy. Um, it's not really surprising to see him there. I would like to see him convert to more like a, an early Stuart Jerry sort of role where he actually kicks a few goals occasionally, and he's just done that a few times this year. But um, if you're looking for a, a smart guy to play between centre square and the defensive 50 um, and be able to get the ball and put it to somewhere that's dangerous, then uh, you can't really go much better from our current squad than Hamish Hartland. And he's certainly proven mm-hmm. this the weekend, I think. He's just uh, yeah. been really useful to us as a tactical asset. He's not going to win Brownlow votes during the game he's been playing this year, but who gives a stuff? Because if the team's winning games, then we don't really give a shit. Yeah, I don't think he cares. I think his um, his entries into the forward 50 are just so precise. Yeah. Uh, his kicking is, is beautiful to watch. Um, that one where Sean Burgoyne almost tackled him, but he still got the kick out, and it's where which <sighs> what led to the, uh, the Wingard, Wingard Hodge bump. Um, it was really well placed. Um, and he was under pressure. He knew he was under pressure, but he still got the kick away and still had the accuracy. I love watching him do that uh, that run and and kick on the run. Great, he's a great player. Great player to watch. Yeah, and I think that also the benefit of him playing that role is that it might actually add to his durability, same as it did for I suppose Peter Bergwijn when he was playing back pocket. In that the fact that he's playing half back, this probably means there's a little bit, a slightly less. Physical contesting, which um, we know that Hamish is injury-prone. His older brother's injury-prone. Um, and so if we can put him in a position where he sort of can play kind of outside and just you know intercept and pick up the ball and just be really damaging with his disposal, I think it'll add to his longevity and obviously it'll add to the value of the Adelaide side. So I'm really happy with him in that role. On a, has he played every us. game this year? He, he, I think he has. Hammer. Yeah, pretty sure he has, yeah. So that'd be a first time, and that's probably a no small part to the fact that he's playing this kind of role. Um, and so that's great. If he's useful strategically to the side, if he's managed to avoid injury and we're winning games, um, why would you change things? And if he's happy playing the role, which hopefully he is, but hopefully he's happy playing that role, then I see no reason to change what he's doing. Um, it's a really fantastic um, asset to the Port Adelaide side. It's really great for Ken Hinkley to have as a, a thing that uh, opposition sides have to watch out for and account for. We might see him starting to cop the old um, half-forward tag in future, uh, which we have ourselves deployed, obviously, with great effect in the past. But, um, we'll see how it goes. And uh, I think the Hamish Hartlett has got enough aggro and enough sense to be able to get around most uh, guys that they might use the half-forward tag. Yeah. He's, a, he's a bit of an enforcer too. I like that about him. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to have a few of those. Um, but as I said earlier, I think in this podcast, you know, he's got a – is he from West Adelaide? West Adelaide, yeah. Um, he's got a not quick caught up in the West Adelaide bullshit. He's got a, yeah, okay, be a bit tough, but still focus on winning the game. And I think he's certainly walking that line pretty well. So. Cheer, cheer the black and the white. Moving on and talking about the SA and the field, the Maggies continued their great run of form. They won uh, four wins on the trot now. Uh, they defeated South at Alberton, uh, 14 goals, 10 to 9 goals, 9. Uh, Andrew Moore, Paul Stewart and uh, Carl Amon kicked three goals each, whilst Jared Redden also kicked two as well. I guess the good news is that uh, it pretty much ensures the double chance outside of two unlikely results. I think Nord would have to win by over 100 and we have to lose by over 100 to, uh, to miss out. But So that's uh, a minor bonus, I guess, uh, leading into the finals. How are we feeling about Jared Redden staying on the list? 
Um, I'm not saying we should delist him, but obviously his injury concerns in the past have been obviously an issue. Um, and we don't have a huge number of ruckmen, but um, are we still pretty happy for him to hang around for another year? Look, Frampton, I don't think is ready. Um, so I'm more than happy for, for Jared Redden to stay around for another season. And uh, what about Moore and Stuart? Well, three goals each. Um, I think they're both pretty high on most people's list of to be delisted. Um, do you think that's sort of, is it too, too little too late? Or is it enough to sort of keep them around a bit longer as well? There's no doubt that Stuart's gone. I think that's 100% locked in. He'll get delisted and redrafted as a rookie so that um, we yeah. don't have to pay out his contract. Um, and look, he provides great depth as well. Um, Andrew Moore, I think it is probably too little too late. He's always been a very good SANFL player. Uh, just hasn't been able to uh, to raise that game at AFL level. And, you know, he, had, he was probably best on ground. 22 touches. He had six clearances, four inside 50s and three goals. So, yeah, he had a wonderful game. But I would think he, considering he's uh, uncontracted, I think he'll be out the door as well. Yeah. It's a pity because I like... He's got the physique to be a really good uh, really good player. But I, I just don't think he's a smart footballer. Um, you know, he's... Uh, as you said, Macker, he can play well in the SNFL and seems to dominate every now and then, but uh, he looks lost at AFL, uh, AFL level. And I say that as somebody who's, who's been a fan of his for a, for a couple of years. I wanted to see him succeed because I thought he had the tools and he's got the physique to be a very handy player. But, yeah, it's, he's been disappointing. I'd, I find him more disappointing than, than John Butcher. Um, yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, he was listed. I guess he was drafted as that, you know, Ryan O'Keefe um, sort of clone when Ryan O'Keefe was all the craze. And yeah, I mean, I think I've said before, either on the forums or on the podcast, that I like the idea of Andrew more than I actually like Andrew more. You know, he's got <laughs> seems to have all the tools, and he's that sort of play type that you know you really want to do well. And if he does succeed at AFL level, you know, he's going to be this goal-kicking monster, you know, big body, can win clearances, kick goals, get heaps of the ball outside, and he just hasn't looked apart at all. I've got look, I mean, Bre- Brendan Archie's done, come in and done that job the last yep. two weeks, and Precisely. his last two weeks have been better than any game that Andrew Moore's played at AFL level. I've got to say that um, when we drafted Andrew Moore, um, I guess, I suppose it's a thing that's happened over my time on Bigfoot, and I guess everyone else's as well, is learning how much, learning a lot about the game. And so I remember back in the years when I think Riley Dunn was kicking around and Fremantle picked him at around, around pick 10. Um, yep. The only thing he was really known for at junior level was being a utility. Uh, and the fact that he sort of didn't do much after that t- sort of told me, like, you don't use a first-round pick on a utility. But that's exactly what we did with Andrew Moore. And unfortunately, it's come to much the same result as it did with Riley Dunn, which is that the reason typically why you're, why you're a utility at junior level is because... No one thinks that you're important enough to play in, a, in an important position in the top side. So it might be that you look really good in that role, but that it might be that there are some things missing from your game. So, for example, you might be missing uh, a degree of fitness, you might be missing a degree of skill, most likely, or you might be missing the fact that you're not a good contested mark or something like that. But you're good enough to keep around the place and use as a tool. And unfortunately, um, there's not a lot of those players that really work out. Um, Ryan O'Keefe would be an exception, no doubt, and that's probably what makes him valuable. And there's certainly others that have been drafted, but most of the time when they have been drafted, most of the guys that you say are, I suppose, pure utilities, they've mostly been drafted for the third round or later or even on the rookie because they've had to do a lot of development <laughs> standard. I think Andrew Moore's really proven the fact that guys that are just utilities, you really don't want to draft them in the first round, and hopefully we don't do it again. Um, mm. Yeah. Well, 
Yes, three first-round draft picks in 2009, and the best of the lot looks to be Jasper Pitter, who half the people hate at Port Adelaide. So it's, uh, uh, <laughs> it's a great way to sort of a blow three first-round uh, draft picks, I would think. Can I have my little brag where I said that we should draft John Butcher, Daniel Talia, and Jake Carlisle in 2009? <laughs> yeah, you can have your humble brag. That's, that's all right. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I'm... As we've said, and I, I know Tribe said it on the podcast as well, I mean, Butcher and Talia just look like the absolute lay down, yeah. 100%, got to do it, two bookends, yeah. would have been great. And even though Butcher hasn't worked out, he was still always going to be drafted. It was still the right pick to make at the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think I was happy to draft Andrew Moore with pick 16, um, but I think I wanted uh, Luke Tapscott, so I should probably shut my mouth as well. So. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> You're sort of always going to be like a poor man's Brock McLean. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly what he turned out to be as well. Yeah. Mm. So I guess the other thing to note maybe from that game was uh, Sammy Cahoon was one of the best on ground as well. He had 25 touches, 10 marks, uh, a few clearances and a couple of behinds. He, he played a really good game and pretty interested to see how he goes next year. Um, you know, As we've said, maybe Andrew Moore might be gone, maybe Aaron Young as well. You know, there's going to be spots where he moves up the uh, the depth ladder, I guess, and you know, might be maybe first in, first out, I guess, next year. I kind of okay. So the second half of the, well, not the second half, the last five games, maybe, well, less than that. Um, we've seen us playing a different style. So earlier in the year on the podcast, I definitely said that we were playing in a, a versional style of game where our preference would be to go to the outside, go to the wings, and avoid the physical contest. Um, we're playing a game style that's much more about coming as close to the physical contest as possible to draw the man and provide more options upfield. And I don't think, personally, I don't think the Cahoon fits into that style of game plan at all. Um, he's small, he's light, he's reasonably fast, not particularly. Um, he's great for an outside grinder, but I don't think that if we're going to play that sort of more contested style of football, more attacking style of football, I don't think there's a place for Cahoon in that style of side. I think he's probably better off being at another club. Um, I'm not sure if he'd have the value for a trade. I don't think he does, but I don't necessarily see, unless we have a huge reversion to being a sort of an outside seagully side, I don't see any real future for Sam Cahoon at Port Adelaide. And um, I know this might be a, an unfair call in some respects, but I really feel that very strongly. I think yeah, he'll he be given every chance me. to succeed. I think he'll be given every chance, and I think there's definite, I guess, negatives to his game, uh, which mm. he probably needs to work on, but... Uh, I mean, I, I guess a lot of people have said he might turn into that sort of Kane Corns replacement as a tagger, but I don't really see that as, oh, I don't think he's good enough inside or, or has the toughness to do that. But so, I don't know, I, I think there might be a spot for him at AFL level. It's just a matter of finding his niche, I guess. I think He's that, another one that seems lost out there. He doesn't yeah. seem to know where he's at. I don't know. I, I think he's improving in that regard. I, th- I think he's played some pretty good games at AFL level this year and was maybe a little bit unfair to be dropped when he got dropped. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, he, is coming, he is coming first year off a, a knee reconstruction. He is still pretty young. I think he's only 20 years old. So he's still got time on his side. And you know, if it's someone that gets a lot of the ball, I mean, you can always do with more sort of ball magnets like that. And you know, at the very least, he's going to be good depth. I think that the main difference between Cahoon and someone like, I suppose, an Archie or over at North Melbourne, a Brent Harvey, is the fact that they are both physical guys 
and Cahoon is definitely not that player. Um, if you're looking for small guys that have a long-term impact, they're either extremely fast or they're surprisingly strong and a strong mark for their height, and Cahoon is neither of those. Yep, that's, that's a good call. That's fair enough. Sorry. <laughs> I, can't disagree, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> that yeah. porno moustache and hair just doesn't do it for well, I mean, the porno moustache is a huge asset. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have to say, there's one thing about Jasper Pittard, which um, Rick was not going to be too happy about, but I can't figure out what his ideal hairstyle should be because he always looks like a guy that sort of does, you know, garage pornography in his spare time. <laughs> <laughs> like he has a little moustache or something like that. Now he's got the long hair and it's like, oh, I just know what he should do. But, um, yeah, certainly. I did know. like the headband look that Jasper was rocking. Earlier in the year, yeah. Man helps a little bit, but then he, he, he looks like he's trying to be Pat Cash. Then, but um, yeah. <laughs> That's it. Well, Carl Amon kicked three goals as well. I'm interested to see what he can do next year. Maybe he might get. Maybe he might sneak in another game before the end of the season at AFL level. Maybe, not sure there, but um, Matty Loby also had a pretty good game. He had 30, 34 hitouts, twelve touches, um, a bunch of clearances as well. So I don't know. We might see him uh, come back into the side too. I think that with Lobby, um, if the rumours are going around that he's got any kind of injury at all, like send him off, get him his surgeries, get him his recuperation or anything else, because even if he does come back, I mean, we don't really need him to come back at this point. Um, yeah. So if he's playing in this NFL, I suppose, next week, then we know it's not an injury, in my view. Because um, yeah. if it's an injury, he should just be not bothering to play at this point. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens if uh, come finals time for the SANFL... Um, whether he, um, you know, whether he qualifies or or what have you. I mean, if he plays the next game at SANFL level, he's played three in a row. Maybe he does qualify on, in that regard. I'm I'm not too sure. Yeah, I suppose that could be a thing. Um, I think I if he's not going to play SANFL finals, he should probably go off now and have a rest. I would think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that. Like, go and have a good lie down. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Have a few stakes. Um, I don't think there's a lot of times that I'd say that, you know, you might do something for the sake of the magpies, but I guess this is probably one of the really corner cases where you might consider it, um, in that we don't need Lobby for the rest of the year for the power. Um, he could be resting, but he might as well be playing Ruck for the magpies, so why not keep him in there and get him in finals qualified, if he can be, and just give him a, a run with the magpies and hopefully, you know, jag a premiership at that level, why not? Um, and I suppose it's also useful for him to be hitting to the midfielders of tomorrow, I suppose they'll get used to his style, um, but yeah, if he's not, if he's injured, like if he's if he's getting injections every game, then he should definitely not be playing. Yeah. No doubt. All right. Well, I think that's it for tonight. We've gone a little bit over time, but that's all right. Thanks for coming back on. No worries. <sighs> I could keep talking for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> would would be very easy to do, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can I can I just say, I know that Rick's coming back in a couple of weeks apparently, but I'd just like mm. to point out the fact that as a co-host, I have a 100% winning record. So, you know, <laughs> do that at your risk. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Sorry, Rick, you're uh, on the sidelines, I think. <laughs> you're Matthew Loby to uh, Porsche's Patrick Ryder. Yes, I agree with that totally. <laughs> I'm the camo shade of his Jasper Pittard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on that note, come Port Adelaide. Go power. Power and come the magpies, I guess, as well, but mostly come the power.
See you later. Puts the ball across towards a teammate. Ritz hand pass though, slapped, and now needs away. Everything falling into place. Need the beneficiary running down towards the 50. Lines up, vacant goal square. How about this? This is breathtaking.